So I'm not sure whether you know this, but uh, pet spending last year reached £3.5 billion in the UK alone. Uh, as a nation, we absolutely love our pets. Uh, and it's not just pets, even veganism is on the rise. I was walking along Queensferry Road the other day and on the side of this bus there was a picture of a pig and it said, don't eat me, I'm a person too. <clears throat> on a sillier note, my mum and I often laugh because my nan has no pictures of the grandkids in the house but pictures of her spaniels all over the walls, I kid you not. Uh, they're really good photos, don't get me wrong. Now, I'm not against pets or veganism. Uh, I actually have a cat and he's very well fed uh, and I like vegetables. However, this rise in animal obsession uh, runs the risk of blurring the lines uh, uh, of distinction. And it actually leaves us asking questions like, what does it mean to be made in God's image? Uh, are humans distinct from animals? And if they are, in what way? And why does this matter? And the answers to these questions are rooted in Genesis 1 and 2. <clears throat> so we'll dig into the text. One of the questions that I always had, actually, uh, about this passage was, is it a second creation account? Uh, and if so, why does it seem to contradict chapter one in so many ways? Surely the author of Genesis couldn't have got it wrong by the second chapter. And that's the charge against us as Christians at times. I'm really glad to discover that the error was in the question as opposed to the Bible. I'm noticing that in my life. Every single time, the error tends to be in me and not in the Bible itself. So this isn't a new creation account at all. It's more of a new perspective. So we've gone from cosmic to specific. The creation of the sun, the moon, the stars, everything, to the paradise garden. Uh, Liam mentioned last week that it's a really good idea to, to note that when the Bible does that, when it goes from general to very specific. And it's here that we learn about relationships at their most basic level, living in the presence of God. So two points today. Number one, God creates man for the garden. So we're now, it's almost like we've stepped back in time. Last week we looked at, or two weeks ago we looked at the seventh day, God's rest. Here we're looking at the sixth day of creation. Uh, God makes the animals and then mankind. And we've already seen in chapter one, uh, chapter one verses 26 and 7, uh, that Mankind is made in God's image, male and female. And it's now in verse 7, if you look down at that, that it provides an insight into the intricacy and the unique creation of man. Verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man. See, the language here, it's, it's pottery language. Just as an expert potter forms some kind of a vase or a, or a beautiful ornament with precision, intricacy, shaping it and fashioning it. So, the Lord God, he forms the man. He's a creature. He's created. And note everything before this has actually been spoken into existence by God's word alone, from nothing. Yet Adam is created from such modest material. Have a look at verse 7 as well. From the dust of the ground. It's really humbling, actually, and it's a good reminder of Adam's, as well as our own, creatureliness. And it should snuff out any pride about status or gifts. From dust we are and to dust we shall return. And I think that's part of the fear in our own culture. Um, if you haven't noticed, there's a, there's a crisis in our culture regarding the body. Uh, Nancy Piercy, in her excellent book, uh, Love Thy Body, she asks this question. Do we see the body as a reservoir of meaning, a source of moral truths, 
Or do we just see the body as a piece of matter with no moral message? And I think in our culture it's clearly the second one, that the body is just an appendage and nothing more. Uh, And so the mutilation and the transformation of the body is commonplace. Hatred of the body and self-harm is on the increase. Um, You read recently in the news uh, about the social media giant Instagram banning images of self-harming because of the uh, potential lead to that young girl's suicide. It's really sad. Uh, See, our culture needs the truth of Genesis 2. It's filled with truth. Truth that God designed the body with intention, purpose, and all out of love. And the narrative actually continues. We're not just bodies. No, verse 7 says that uh, the Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The breath of the very living God. Adam was face to face with God as he breathed into his nostrils. And there's a kind of contrast here. I don't know whether you see it. Adams, he's made of the earth. He's made of dust. And yet he's enlivened. He's brought to life by the very breath of God. There's a kind of like a rags to riches, a humility to exaltation. See, in the ancient world, um, it was only the kings that were made in the image of God. And we see this uh, as, we look at, as we read the account in uh, Exodus of the Egyptian kings. Uh, but here what we see is the universal dignity of all human beings. For we're all made in the image of God because we're all sons and daughters of Adam. And this information should have transformed the way that the Israelites viewed all humanity. I think Liam touched on this a couple of weeks ago as well, saying man made in God's image, whether male, female, black, white, young, old, born, unborn, we're all equal. We're a creature yet with great dignity, raised from poverty to royalty, dust to exaltation. I love the word of God. (laughs) Verse 7 says that we're embodied souls, More than that, that it's a good gift of God's creation. You see, our bodies teach us about God and they enable us to live in his world that he's created. And we can see God's care for the whole person as we look in the next verse. God provides for body and soul. Look at verses eight and nine with me. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he had put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. I often wonder what variety of trees and plants were in the garden. I don't know what your favorite is. Apples, pears, oranges, pomegranates. I'm not sure. I'm sure they were all there. It doesn't tell us, but what we do know is that there are all kinds of trees. Trees good for food, nutritionally balanced. Why? Well, because God cares about the human body. He cares about it. He designed it. But it's more than that. They were simply pleasing to look at. When we're driving, um, or when I'm driving, anywhere beautiful, through the Lake District, wherever, Jody is regularly telling me, keep your eyes on the road. Stop looking at the countryside. We're going to crash. So if you go anywhere with me, maybe make sure I'm a passenger if we're going through somewhere beautiful. Why do I do that? Because God made trees beautiful to look at, just simply pleasing to the eye. I mean, what a good God. He could have provided Adam with trees for food, and that would have been good and gracious enough. But no, he makes them pleasing to the eye because he's a God of beauty and artistic genius. See, the God who created galaxies and every sunset and every vast mountain range and every little baby smile, 
He's the God who makes trees pleasing to the eye. There's beauty and there's bounty. And of course the text says that there are two other trees. Look at verses 9b. There's the, in the middle of the garden there was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And questions definitely pop into my mind at this point. Why are they even there? Why did God allow man choice if he knew that he would rebel? How is evil in a world made good? And questions that are necessary and good and that have answers too. But not the central point of this text. Uh, But the Bible does without shame assume the presence of evil. uh, And without feeling the need to necessarily explain all of it. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord. But the second part of that verse says, but the things that are revealed are for us and for our children. And what does the Bible regularly reveal? That God is good and that he is in control, even when it doesn't seem that way. And so we can't delve into all the questions that we have on these texts, but in short, in this sermon, the tree of life is available to Adam when he's in the presence of God. For it's in God and God alone who has eternal life. And so when Adam's in his presence, he has access to life. That's why when he's banished in Genesis 3, uh, the cherubim guards him from having access to the tree of life. And the second tree represents living God's way, according to God's rules. Living alongside God and living alongside this tree is basically Adam saying no to doing things his own way and saying yes to God's way, trust in him. This tree doesn't represent just knowing about good and evil. It's not about that, but it's more deciding for oneself what is good and what is evil, moral autonomy. And as we know, the next chapter, unfortunately, sets the scene for mankind determining their own morality, and we see the issues there. Yet God had a better plan for Adam, and he set out the means by which Adam should do this, and that's verse 15. God took the man, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Before I was a Christian, I think if you'd have asked me about work, I would have kind of sneered and said, well, it's a necessary evil. It gets me my money and I kind of would have struggled with it. Genesis 2 completely rejects this idea. You see, here is the actual purpose for mankind being put in the garden. Adam, as well as all human beings, are creatures that should work. And it makes sense. God is a God who is always at work. Jesus said that in John 5. And so we, as his image bearers, too, are those that should work. What kind of work? Well, initially in Genesis 2, it was gardening. And if we think about that, how that revolutionizes the way we look at the dignity of manual labor. It's an honorable thing to work with your hands, to graft. That being said, I don't think God's final intention was for everyone to become and remain gardeners. Uh, One commentator said that it was always God's intention for man to split the atom. Mankind's command was to fill the earth and to do so to the glory of God. And so Adam's descendants were intended to land on the moon, land on Mars, write symphonies, write novels, all to the glory of God. Part of God's plan for Adam... um, Placing him in the garden was this, uh, the second part of it. He was to work, but he was also to take care. That's the second part of verse 15. And this doesn't mean simply tending flowers or removing weeds, because remember, there weren't any weeds at this point. Uh, the phrase might be translated in your Bible to uh, guard and protect. Uh, and it's the same phrase that's used of the priests when they 
guard and protect the tabernacle in Numbers. It's also the same phrase that's used in the next chapter as the cherubim in chapter 3 verse 24 as he guards, as the cherubim guards the garden from Adam. So already in these early chapters we've seen that part of Adam's role was to guard the garden from evil. This is part of the unique responsibility of human beings. No animal was given this responsibility. And what weapon does God give Adam? Is it superpowers? No, no, we'd quite like that in our action movie age. No, it's not superpowers. It's verse 16. It's God's word. And this is our second point. He gives him his word to protect. And in the garden, point two, we look at uh, God-given relationships. There are three types of relationships that I would just like to pick up on that are the thrust of Genesis 2. Number one, man's relationship to God. And this is specifically to do with his word. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Part of living as God's people in God's place is recognizing God's rule. And he does so by his word. You see, you cannot live with God whilst disobeying or ignoring his word. Just imagine this picture, if you will, that you live with your wife or your mother or your friend. So you live in the same house. uh, You're in their presence regularly. But when they speak, you kind of separate their words from who they are. And you say, I know you're saying these things, but I don't need to listen to that. I'm with you. I'm in your presence. That relationship is not going to last very long. True fellowship in the presence of God was given to Adam and Eve as long as they obeyed God's word. And by obeying his word, it was trusting his promises and affirming his character. And his word wasn't harsh, exactly. Look at it. It was bountiful. Eat from any tree. There's just one that you can't eat from. Trust me, God says. Trust my word. For when you eat of that, you will die. I think it's really interesting in the next chapter when Satan tempts Eve. He focuses on the prohibition. He doesn't focus on the provision. Satan comes and says, what about this tree? He doesn't say, look at all this that God has given you. He's not a stingy God. He gave Adam all that he could want. I think at times in the church, sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking that God is not a good God who gives gifts, who's lavish towards us. He lavished Adam with everything that he needs and he lavishes us with everything that we need. So there's a kind of a warning here, Christian. I think be careful that you don't listen to the whispering lies of Satan as he points to God's prohibitions. As he highlights, don't click on that. Don't don't gossip with them. Oh, you're not meant to do that, but you should do it. And whilst he tries to silence God's provision, God's bounty, the promises of Christ, the freedom that we have, the graces that we've been given, God's community, his family, the love that you've been shown. So it's a challenge to encourage one another by reminding each other of God's bountiful gifts towards us. Living under God's rule is living with God, listening to his word. That's one relationship. Relationship number two is man's responsibility to animals. 
We see um, in verses 19 and 20 that Adam is doing a God thing. The Lord God formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air and he brought them to the man to see what he would name them. See, Adam names the animals and he exercises authority and rule. That's what it means to name something. And we've actually already seen that in chapter one. God saw the light and he called it day. He saw the darkness and he called it night. Part of living under God's rule, it's ruling in part underneath him. Part of living with God is being a a mini ruler underneath him, underneath his authority. So Adam was exercising authority over the animals. Um, But in this passage as well, we see that he was actually exercising discernment as well. As the animals passed by, he wasn't just looking at the appearance and thinking, oh yeah, aardvark, giraffe, duckbill platypus thing. No, he was looking and he was assessing, he was discerning to see whether one of those would be a fit helper for him. God was kind of creating in him a, a holy discontent, looking for another But verse 20 tells us, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. And that's where we see the third relationship in the garden, man's relationship with woman. We see that there's nothing in the animal kingdom that is Adam's correspondent other. You see, whilst we are made from the same material as the animals, we're made from dust, we are fundamentally different. We were made to rule over and alongside the animals, but to be fundamentally different from them. And I don't think we need a rocket scientist to point this out to us. If my house sets on fire, I'm not thinking, oh, who should I save, my cat Buster or my daughter Charlotte? No, we're going to go for the child, aren't we? <laughs> because there's a fundamental difference between humans and animals. And I think our world needs to hear this truth. And that's why in the narrative, God says, for the first time in creation, he actually says that something is not good, verse 18. And it's not because man will be lonely, but it's for for God's image bearers to fulfill the command to subdue the earth. It cannot be done by man alone. I mean, practically, there's some real issues there. One man is not going to cut it. So verse 21, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and he closed up the place of the flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. And it's more than just procreation as well. Human beings as male and female, uh, they teach us about God. There's something unique about a woman that a man alone cannot communicate about God. And there's something unique about man alone that a woman cannot convey. He says that here he takes his rib or uh, his side from his side. Either would work in the translation. And it demonstrates two things. Equality and difference. Woman is taken from him, made of the same stuff, and yet different. And I love the Puritan Matthew Henry's comment on this. Uh, He says that Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, neither out of his feet to be trampled on him, but out of his side to be equal to him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him. And that's Adam's response when he sees her. Verse 23, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman for she is taken out of man. Finally, Adam says, there's one like me, one of my kindred. 
Now I can fulfill your law. Now I can fulfill your command, Lord, subduing the earth and inhabiting it. Now it's possible for you've provided a helper. And don't be put off by that word helper either. Uh, If you're a woman here today, that word helper actually refers to God. Um, God as Israel's helper. So it's anything but weak. In fact, it's strong and dependable. Uh, And really emphasizing dependence, just as the first woman came from man, so now every man comes from woman. There's a complete dependence on one another and an ultimate dependence on the one who created them. And I think this relational dependence finds its climax in verses 24 and 25. The unifying of man and woman in the covenant of marriage. The language here is covenant language. To leave and forsake one and to cleave to another. So here we have the foundation for the idea of marriage. And even more than that, it's a, a picture of the gospel itself. The Apostle Paul says this. I mean, how practical is Genesis 2? Now, it doesn't take two seconds to look around this world and to see that this isn't how humanity are living today. We're in a world of pain, suffering, murder, suicide, war. And although we know what happens in the next chapter, that wasn't the end. For there was one who came and he did what the first Adam failed to do. Jesus Christ, he's the one who lived perfectly according to God's word, being himself the very revelation of God's word. The express image of the invisible God took on humanity in order to live in perfect relation to God and to humanity in order to suffer and die on behalf of humanity. And if this is new to you, if you've got questions about Christianity and if you're visiting today, um, then firstly... Um, there's a gift of a Bible here for you if you're interested in finding out more please come and take it Uh, secondly we are running a Christianity Explored course here at Charlotte Chapel it would be great for you to get involved in that or maybe you've got something that you want to pray about there will be a prayer team down here at the front or alternatively if you go to Connect Corner and you want to find out more about what we are as a church and what we do and more about the Lord Jesus Christ then please come and find out But I know many of you know this Jesus here this evening. Um, uh, And for those of us that want to love and follow Christ, uh, I think there are some significant lines of application from these texts. Genesis 2 shows us that we're firstly creatures and we are designed for relationship and relationship with God fundamentally. This is integral to who we are. You see, relationship is in God's own nature, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so it's absolutely not a surprise uh, that we operate on a, on a relational level. Um, and although we don't dwell in the garden in the presence of God, there's in a sense where we've got something even greater, that we have God dwelling with us by his Spirit, supernaturally, uniting us as the people of God. So although we can look uh, and know in anticipation that Adam will be banished from the garden, out of God's presence, we as the people of God have been brought into his presence through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and by his spirit. And so then thinking about us being constantly in the presence of God, how does that transform the way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we think about work? As you go to your desk on Monday morning or as you pick up your paintbrush or as you uh, begin an assignment, uh, 
or as you go back to another week of uh, enjoying retirement, living out retirement, how does the enduring presence of God by the Holy Spirit transform the way that we live, the way that we interact with other people, the way that we take opportunities to witness and talk to people? I'd like to say that it should fundamentally transform the way that we think about all that we do. Another point of application, Genesis 2 should transform the way that we speak and celebrate humanity as male and female. And I think never a more important topic in this culture. Um, Genesis 2 is the basis for marriage, for the gift of sex. We talk about beauty and bounty. And it's the foundation that God designed for us to fulfill and inhabit the earth. And so in our culture, with marriage on the decline, with sexual brokenness at an all-time high, uh, with issues such as gender dysphoria and body shame and self-harming, how much does our culture need to hear the truth of Genesis 2, that God is good and he's designed humanity to flourish, and that our bodies have a purpose, that male and femaleness talks to them about God. It says something about who God is. And I just wonder how much as a church we are celebrating those differences. Do we accidentally uh, fall into the category of one of either two extremes uh, where we kind of say, oh, men and women are so different that we negate the sameness or we say that men and women are basically the same and we forget to celebrate the difference? As the culture declines into relational confusion, how powerful would it be if the church of Jesus Christ could truly adorn the gospel by living lives that flourish under God's loving rule as we complement one another, valuing our unique difference, but also our unique similarity as image bearers? What, is it made to be, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? We're those who are designed to be in a loving relationship with our creator and to reflect his glory through creation as we live and serve with one another. And Genesis 2, although it resulted in the rebellion, gives humanity a blueprint for life and love and marriage. And now as Christians, we live out this mandate under the rule and the reign of Christ, the one who redeemed us and is redeeming our relationships and so whether you're unmarried or married, male, female, a laborer or a lawyer, a doctor or a demolition man, we're actually called to live in a loving relationship with him and to serve with one another and celebrate being made in the image of God, working in his creation and glorifying in his good design of humans as male and female. Let's pray.